to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew uh, chapter 1. And uh, as I begin this morning, our time, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have something in your life, um, maybe a person or an event or a situation, that if you had to put a one-word description on it, you might use this word, impossible? Some of you know some people like that, right? Some of you know some things that take place in your life. You say, this is impossible. Maybe you can think of something in presently or in your past that merits this description. Do you have anything going on right now in your life that fits that category? Can you envision anything in the days ahead that might just appear impossible? Perhaps it's your husband. He's impossible. Or maybe it's your wife. She's impossible. Maybe it's your children. They're impossible. Maybe it's a co-worker. He or she is impossible to get along with. Or maybe it's somebody you've been witnessing to. And you say, this is impossible. They're never going to get saved. Perhaps it's a change that you need to make in your life. Maybe there's a bad habit that you have. And you say, it's you. I, just can't, I just can't get rid of this habit. It's impossible. Perhaps it's a project you need to get done. I'm never going to get this done. Well, we could probably talk about similar scenarios all morning long. And I think it would be fascinating if we had time to go around the auditorium this morning and and just hear different stories that kind of fit under this heading, impossible. But I have a word for you. And that I think he'll put all these stories that we might come up with or these scenarios that I've described might put it into perspective. It's a word that should immediately infuse our heart with hope and with confidence and with direction. And anytime you think of a situation in your life that just seems impossible, you should think of this word. And perhaps many of you have already, but... Are you ready for the word? It's not really a word, it's a name, which is a word. Jeconias. You have an impossible situation? Think about Jeconias. That's right. Jeconias. Or if you prefer, you could use one of the other names he's also known by in the Bible. Coniah, or Jeconiah, or Janiakin. All the names are talking about really the same person, Jeconias. Now, don't you just feel your heart welling up even as I say that this morning? I mean, you're thinking, man, that's that's full of hope. I could get excited about this. Well, just in case you're not moving, it's not moving your heart just yet. Here's what's going to happen. This morning, I'd like for us to look at several passages of Scripture that tell us the story of Jeconias. And in doing so, I think, teach us a very important lesson that nothing is impossible with God. 
And so with that in mind, as we look here at Matthew chapter 1, we're going to begin a little uh, series. We'll uh, start this morning, and then when I get back um, from uh, my trip, then we'll uh, finish out the month with uh, the rest of this little series called The Surprises of Christmas. And the challenge I have, even as a pastor, is actually that we only have a few Sundays here, and and we'll have the Christmas holiday upon us, and so I want to begin that theme today. But the overall premise is that there are many events that surround the birth of Christ that really are kind of surprising. They kind of catch us off guard. And that's not that we would expect. Uh, not what we would have expected God to do, but certainly not what we would have done if we had been in charge. And you might uh, get ready to say, oh no, okay, get ready to say that. When I give you the next bit of news today and then the next uh, message in this series, we're actually going to study the genealogies of Christ. Okay? Oh no. You know what genealogies are? They're the birth records. You know, this person was born to so-and-so, and in the next generation, this person was born to this person. You know, it's a study of the begats of the Bible, if you please. But if you're in, a, in the habit of reading the Christmas story to your family, maybe on Christmas Eve or on Christmas morning, uh, these are the kind of verses you would generally skip, Okay. You wouldn't even bother reading these because they've got so uh, many long names and they're hard to pronounce, but, and they really don't seem to mean much. And yet the names are here for a reason. And I'd like to present to you uh, that there are some very rich lessons here, truths that we can learn about our God, truths that we can learn about ourselves. And so with that in mind, I want you to listen carefully as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and you be looking for the main character, Jeconias. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Abinadab, and Abinadab begat Naasim, and Naasim begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after that, they brought to Babylon and Jeconias begat Salathiel and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel begat Abihud and Abihud begat Eliakim and Eliakim begat Azor and Azor begat Sadak and Sadak begat Achim and Achim begat Elihud and Elihud begat Eleazar and Eleazar begat Mathan and Mathan begat Jacob. 
And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David unto the carrying away of Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away from Babylon to Christ are 14 generations. We made it. Now, just a couple of things to sum up the ideas that we just read about this. This generation is like many and most biblical genealogies. Uh, It's not intended to be exhaustive. If you compare this to the Old Testament, which Matthew would have uh, been intimately acquainted with, uh, you see that he picks out the main characters and then he leaves some generations out. It's probably done as a memory aid since many of God's people at that time didn't have a copy of God's word, uh, but they knew they knew uh, who they knew from memory. But also, we to get a complete picture, you have to compare these words to the other genealogy, uh, genealogy in the Gospels, which is found in the book of Luke. And we're not going to take time to go there this morning, but if we did, you would find while Matthew traces Christ's birth a line through his legal father, Joseph. Luke traces Jesus' birth through his biological mother, Mary. And the significance of that is going to come, become apparent, I believe, in a few moments. Now, I realize at this point you say, Pastor, I don't see anything impossible here. Uh, other than the names are impossible sometimes to pronounce. And any application to my life... Uh, This week, that seems impossible for me to see, but we really didn't read these verses, uh, anything in these verses that appeared to be impossible. Well, actually, we did. It takes a little more study, but I promise that with a little effort, I think it's worth it. And what I'd like to do is talk about man's impossible problem, God's miraculous solution, and principles for us today. First of all, as we look... At man's impossible problem, we find in order to understand the huge dilemma that Matthew was is raising here in these verses, you have to know three simple things. Number one, you need to know the promise of a king. The promise of a king. The thrust of the Old Testament is that one day there's they'll be coming a king. And that theme you'll find woven throughout the Word of God. For example, in the Garden of Eden, as God was talking uh, about the consequences of Adam and Eve's uh, sin, uh, and, and he said to Satan, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it will bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Genesis three fourteen and 15. And here again, as you go through the first chapters of the Bible, uh, you find God is talking about the seed of a woman, which is a very unusual way to describe someone, isn't it? You almost want to ask, well, well where's the father? Adam and Eve would have been shocked to learn the answer to that question. But Already we're talking about someone who will be coming in the future who had the ability to have victory over the Satan. In Genesis 49 verse 10, we hear the amazing story which says, The scepter shall depart from Judah, not a lawgiver uh, from between his feet, 
until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So again, early in the Bible, we're hearing about this coming ruler. By the way, uh, there's the uh, references there. I skipped a uh, slide. Uh, It says there in Genesis 49, uh, verse 10 is one we just read. We see also the same emphasis in the book of Psalms. Each time we read a little bit more about the one who is coming. Again, this is a theme all the way through the Old Testament. And if you go back to, uh, if you hold your place there in Matthew and you go back to the book of Psalms and you look in Psalm 2, Uh, Psalm 2, you'll see one of the many places it talks about the uh, coming king. Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth shall set themselves uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Uh, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession thou shalt break them with thy rod of iron thou shalt dash them in the piece in pieces like a potter's vessel be wise now therefore o ye kings be instructed ye judges of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the, the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are all they that put their trust in him now we won't take more time to look at more of the psalms but if you really wanted to do a study you go back to psalm 24 where david speaks of the king of glory and the lord of hosts and you see similar statements in psalm 45 and psalm 72 and verse and psalms 110 Uh, but the revelation about his coming this morning uh, is uh, progresses with the prophets where we see more clearly about the coming of the king. He's going to be born of a virgin, according to Isaiah 7, 14. He'll be forsaken and pierced and crushed, according to Isaiah 53. He's called one like the son of man in Daniel 7, verse 13. And the prophet Micah made a promise to the little town of Bethlehem. In Micah 5, 2, But thou, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. See, there's much, much more that we could say, but the point is the centrality uh, of, of this theme you'll find throughout the Old Testament. The coming of a king. He's going to rule in God's promised kingdom. The second thing we see is the king will come from the line of David. Now, this is a very uh, important idea as well. Uh, and we, uh, we know in order uh, for this Jeconias business to make sense, we have to go back to 2 Samuel and chapter 7. So if you'll uh, just turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, we'll notice... Uh, uh, how this starts to be uh, coming together. Uh, this is going to tell us about the Messiah that's going to come through the line of David. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Now therefore shalt thou say unto thy 
my servant David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from uh, following the sheep to the ruler over my people, over Israel, and I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men of that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, and they will dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I have caused thee to rest from thine enemies. And also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days are fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him from the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men." Now, what have we seen those, thus far? The thrust of the Old Testament is that one day there's coming a king. And the coming of the king will come from this royal line of David. Now, I realize you might say, well, pastor, I don't see anything impossible about that. Well, that's why we need to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 22. Stand with me. Jeremiah 22. Didn't know you were going to get an Old Testament survey this morning. But Jeremiah 32, you find this third key idea and that no biological descendant will sit on the throne of David. Remember that this man's name is Jeconias. And Jeconias is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jeconiah, also known in the Bible as Coniah or Jeconiah-chin, was one of David's descendants. And he was in, also in the line of Christ. And so here's where the impossible part comes in. Look at verse 13 of Jeremiah 22. Verse 13. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that causes his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work. This is describing the events just prior to the Babylonian captivity, and God is explaining to his people why his people will be judged. Look at verse 14. Thus saith, I will build thee a wide house and a large chamber, and cutteth him out windows, and he, <clears throat> excuse me, and he, large windows, and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Shalt thou reign because thou clo- closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice? And then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well with him. Was not his, his this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes and thy heart are not but for thy covetous, but for shed innocent blood for oppression and violence to do it. So these kings are living and they're ruling in a way that is selfish and it's dishonest and it's displeasing to God. Well, who are they? Look at verse 18 and 19. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, 
They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, and ah, sister. They shall lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cut, uh, cast uh, forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, this particular king was judged severely for the way he ruled. Who came next? Well, believe it or not, these verses do give us the point of all this. Skip down to verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, here's the, the name that we're looking for, the Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. Now, if we continue on reading here, we find that in verse 25, it says, And I will give thee the hand of them that seek thy life, and unto the hand of those who face thou fearest, even unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the hand of Chaldean, and I will cast thee out, and thy mother that bear thee into another country where ye were not born, and there shall ye die, but to the land where they where to, unto they desire to return, thither shall they not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and cast into the land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man, what? Childless a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. There it is. Now the word childless in verse 30, well, that can't mean no descendants, or else the following phrase wouldn't make any sense. He's going to be childless in the sense that that a biological descendant will never sit on the throne of David. Now, I realize if you're new to studying the Bible, you're probably saying, well, this doesn't make much sense to me. But just let me uh, sum it up in a nutshell, if you please. All through the Old Testament, there's a promise of a coming king. God told David that this coming king would be one of his descendants. And then later in history, God cursed the same line, saying no biological descendant can sit on the throne of David. You say, well, that's impossible. I knew, see, I knew you'd say that. Impossible. Now, either God lied to David or he lied to Jeconias. And there's no way that both statements can be true. Wait a minute. Let's go back to chap Matthew chapter 1 and move on to God's miraculous solution. In Matthew chapter 1, you see, the question here is, how is this coming king going to have legal claim to the throne of David? His father has to be a biological descendant of David, and yet he can't have a biological tie to his own father. That's impossible. Listen, with God, nothing is impossible. Look again at Matthew 1 and verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, all this through this passage, we've had this person begat this person, so-and-so begat so-and-so. This person was born to this person. This person was born to this person. That's exactly what you would expect until you come to Jesus Christ. Joseph, the husband, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom 
was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. There's something unique about his birth. Or more precisely, something unique about his conception that made it possible for him to have a royal claim to the throne because his father was a descendant of David. But to get around the curse of Jeconiah, because Joseph was not his biological father, because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit with the Virgin Mary. You see, right, right over verse 16, you can say, surprise, surprise, surprise. The principle is, with God, all things are possible. Just because it looks like it can't work doesn't mean it can't work. Just because it looks like it won't happen doesn't mean it won't happen. Just because it looks like there's no solution doesn't mean there's no solution. Just because it looks like there's no hope doesn't mean there's no hope. Remember that. The next time you come across something that says, impossible, this is going to be impossible to get through this. Remember Jeconias. Now let me ask you, do you think this message that God is a message God wants you to hear? Well, I think so, because if you really study the Bible, you'll find that it's repeated several times in Scripture. First, it's, it's in Mark chapter 10. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And in verse 17 of Mark 10, it tells us that he came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what shall I do that I should inherit eternal life? Well, there's two things wrong with that question. The man didn't believe yet that Jesus was the Son of God. And our Lord told him, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. And the inference is, since you don't believe God, don't call me good. The second thing that's wrong with that question is he asked what he could do to inherit or earn eternal life. And of course, the scripture is clear that sinful human beings cannot earn, cannot inherit eternal life. And that's why Jesus was on his way to the cross. He was on his way to die in our place to accomplish something for us that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. But this man wasn't ready to hear the good news because he wasn't convinced of the bad news. And so Jesus reminds him that the Ten Commandments are in, in verse 19 of Mark 10. And then the, amazingly, the man says, well, I've kept all those. In other words, apparently I've already inherited heaven because I've perfectly kept the commandments. So Jesus says in verse 21, then go sell all you have. You know, because the Ten Commandments say a little bit about covetousness, don't they? Go sell all you have, not because selling all you have will earn your way to heaven, but it will put you in a position to know you can't keep all the commandments and your future to do so should cause you to adjust the question from good master, what can I do to inherit eternal life? To sinless son of God, how can I trust you as my Savior and Lord? Now, in Mark chapter 10, this story about the rich young ruler, the disciples were watching. So Jesus looks over to them, and in verse 23, he says, you know, how hard is it for a rich person to be saved? Well, the disciples agree, and they say in verse 26, then who can be saved? In other words, the whole thing is impossible. It's impossible to be saved. So what's our Lord say in verse 27? With men, it is impossible, but with God, 
All things are possible. So there are four critical words in that verse. Verse 27, Mark chapter 10. But with God. The person may seem impossible, but not with God. The habit you have may seem impossible, but not with God. The situation you're in may seem impossible, but not with God. Remember Jeconias. With all things, with God, all things are possible. Then there's one in Mark chapter 9. See, he wants us to know this because he's repeating this principle again and again and again. Mark chapter 9, you look there in verse 15. A man brings his son to Jesus who's demon-possessed. He'd already taken the boy to the disciples. They couldn't do anything about it. So Christ had given them the authority, uh, as uh, though Christ had given them the authority to do something about it. So Jesus says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And then notice in Mark uh, chapter 9 uh, what uh, Jesus says in verse 22. In Mark chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, or in verse 23, he said, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. There are some words here that our Lord really didn't like. You know what they are? If thou canst do. You know, in in verse... uh, Verse 22, they said to him, but if thou canst do anything, Jesus doesn't like that. Don't say that to God, if thou canst do. What do you mean? It means you're questioning whether God wants to in the given situation, but never question whether God can do something. You can question whether he wants to, but you cannot question whether he can, because he says there, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Now I said we're going to balance this out in a minute, but some of us here are in situations, I believe, which things are happening that appear to to us as impossible. When the truth of the matter is, nothing is happening in your life or my life because we don't have enough faith to act on God's word. We have concluded in our unbelief either that God doesn't care about what's happening or that his word is not true about a given situation or he's not powerful enough. And these kind of situations we're discussing this morning don't reveal the powerlessness of God, but they reveal the faithlessness of man. And I... Love the honest reply this father gives in verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And many of us would do well to memorize that verse and apply it to the situations that are around us that seem impossible. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. There's one more place. It's in Mark chapter 14. Very another uh, very important parallel passage, chapter fourteen and verse thirty-six. This one comes from the life of our Lord Himself when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying before going to the cross. 
In Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32, it says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very happy. Heavy, and he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And the principle we find here is yes, all things are possible, but not all things are God's will. And wise is the person who factors in these words into her, his or her thinking this morning. All things are possible, but not all things are according to God's will. Now, what can we learn from this besides what we may have already learned now? Some principles. What can we learn from this Christmas surprise about God's solution to the curse of Jeconiah for the way you and I live today? How should the principle that nothing is impossible impact our lives? Well, number one, receive his miraculous solution. Be sure you've received the most miraculous solution to your most significant problem this morning. If you think an issue, this is an issue with Jeconias, and you think it was complicated and hopeless, that's nothing to the condition that a sinful heart has before a holy God. Talk about something that looks impossible. You and I are sinners. And there's no reason to argue about that. But in light of God's holiness, any way of being reconciled to God looks impossible. But God so loved the world. And with God, nothing is impossible. It's not impossible for your sin to be forgiven. It's not impossible for the righteousness of Christ to be placed on your account. It's not impossible for you to have a personal relationship with God, the God of heaven. It's not impossible for you to become one of his children. God provided a solution for our most significant problem, and that is from birth, life, death, and, and, and the resurrection of, G, of dear son, our dear, his dear son. I wonder if I might be talking to someone this morning who's thinking that they, uh, that might work for other people, but not for me. Listen, all I'd say to that is remember Jeconias. With God, all things are possible, and it is, it is possible for you to admit your need this morning and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And on the authority of his word, he will save any person who calls out to him in repentance and faith. And then secondly, don't let impossibilities stop you. Don't let the appearance of impossibility stop you from doing what God wants you to do. Listen, when, when we began this morning, I asked you to think about a person or an event or a situation or that you're tempted to write the word impossible over. Is that still your analysis? Has that analysis stopped you from doing what God wants you to do? You may pick up the phone and call that person with whom you may have a difficulty with. You say, well, that's impossible. Remember Jeconias. 
Nothing is impossible with God. And I'm not promising immediate reconciliation. That's dependent upon both persons responding. But how many unsolved situations are in that condition simply because one person won't make the first move? May God, maybe God has been working in your heart about serving in some particular area. Maybe you've been saying, well, that's impossible. Maybe someone else, but not me, can do that. It's impossible for me. Remember Jeconias. I wonder how many here today need to hear this message from the perspective of being a witness. Oh, that person will never come to Christ. I might as well not even try to witness to them. Or that person has never been interested in spiritual things. It's impossible for them to be saved. Don't let the appearance of impossibility stop you from doing what God wants you to do. And then thirdly, and finally, God delights in solving impossible situations. If you carefully read and study God's word, it'll prove to you how God works and the way he works. Nothing is impossible with God. Don't be surprised when what you, th- what you think is impossible actually takes place. Because you've committed it to God. The next time you think about an impossible situation, and you're tempted to say, there's no way, no way, it's impossible, this isn't going to work. Remember, Jeconias. Jeconias. Let's pray. Father in heaven.